Hello, and welcome to the Slate Political Gabfest. May 25th, 2023, the When Is X Date edition. I'm David Plotz of CityCast. I'm in Washington, D.C., per usual. I'm joined by Emily Bazelon of New York Times Magazine and Yale University Law School from New Haven. Hello, Emily. Hey, David. And from New York City, John Dickerson of CBS Primetime. Hello, John. Hello, David. Hello, Emily. I'm a little I'm a little undone by that expression per use. Are we going to talk about the elephant in the room? What everyone object to the word you used last week? Or are we not going to talk about that? I don't know if they did they object to it or did they give it a big, huge huzzah across the land? I don't know. John called me a, a, a profanity. There's a profanity laced diatribe from John Dickerson, <laughs> which none of us noticed in the moment. It's literally, I none of us noticed. You had I noticed? I'm not even yeah. sure John noticed. <laughs> no, it's true. It was so um, sophomoric and automatic that I I don't know that I recognized it. Although I don't think I've, exp- I've I've said that since I probably was a sophomore. Well, listeners, go back and listen to minute 21 of last week's episode when John Dickerson calls me a. A really surprising, a surprising word in his irritation. But let's get, let's move on. Let's move on. Bygones are bygones. <laughs> um, this week on the Gabfest, can the White House and House Republicans strike a debt ceiling deal before the X date? And have Republicans played Biden through this process? Then Ron DeSantis launches his presidential campaign. So does Tim Scott. Ron DeSantis's launch, however, was much more funny and interesting. Then the AI industry wants AI to be regulated. Will the federal government figure out how to do that? Plus, of course, we'll have cocktail chatter. And a reminder that we have a live show coming up in Washington, D.C. on Wednesday, June 28th at 7.30 p.m. at 6th and I Historic Synagogue. Tickets are at slate.com slash Live. There will also be pre-show cocktails for, for some group of uh, audience members. And go to slate.com slash Live. Get tickets. It's going to be a great, super fun show. We're so looking forward to being with you for our first show of 2023, first live show of 2023. X date, not to be confused with J date, is the day the federal government will not be able to meet its obligations to bondholders, to social security recipients, to Medicare providers, to soldiers and sailors seeking their pay. It might come as soon as June 1st. It might come June 8th, there's an outside chance that Janet Yellen could MacGyver some federal funds until June 15th, when there will be a gusher of new tax revenues that will buy her another month. But it is clear that there is a deadline, and that deadline is looming, and the possibility of catastrophic default is there, and that has forced Congress, in the form of House Republicans, I should say, and the White House to get to negotiating table. After swearing swearing on every Bible, on Frederick Douglass's Bible, on Abraham Lincoln's Bible, on George Washington's Bible, that they would not negotiate on about the debt ceiling and not be held hostages by Republicans who were willing to tank the economy to get a debt ceiling deal forced through. The Biden administration is now negotiating. So, John, before we get to the deal, why has the Biden administration been unable to hold firm to this this position that they wouldn't negotiate on this? They knew it was coming. The Republicans in Congress in the House have a higher pain threshold. There's a group of Republicans in the House who are um, who would be okay if the country defaulted on its debt, or put another way, they don't think it's as big a deal. And whether they genuinely, genuinely believe that, or they're just better at bluffing, 
the White House can't take that chance. I think the president correctly assessed the political conditions where he said, um, whatever the substantive merits, he actually said on the merits, I'm right, but let's excise that portion of what he said. And whatever the substantive merits of who's right or who's wrong about the way this has been negotiated, if the economy tanks as a result of the debt limit not being increased, the president will be blamed because a president gets blamed. And therefore, he's going to take the political pain uh, the House Republicans who are in control of things for a variety of reasons, which we can talk about, even though they are small in number, those who hold this most firm view, uh, they nevertheless, the, Biden has to take them into account. And so um, that's what he's done. That's why he broke on his uh, insistence that he would not negotiate. And it is why, as the deal emerges, it looks like he's breaking on some other things and may very well ask Democrats whose vote he will need and whose vote McCarthy will need um, to vote for stuff that Democrats may really not like. What is the what are the outlines of the deal looking like or what outlines of the discussion? I mean, it's Emily, does it does it seem like there is a, a clear path to a deal? Well, what the Republicans want are cuts to the non-defense discretionary parts of the budget. So social programs, all the stuff that's not the military. And they want work requirements for um, food stamps and uh, Medicaid. And then it seems like there are other things floating around that maybe they'll not insist on, like taking back some of the green energy subsidies that um, Congress passed last year. And then there's the clawback of the unspent COVID funds. That seems like the easiest part. John, am I leaving out some major component of this? I would just add two things. One is the work requirements may not be across the board. It may be work requirements for single able-bodied Americans. We'll see how that um how that plays out, that doesn't change the position of many progressives who argue that talking about work requirements in any context stigmatizes um, federal benefits and unfairly characterizes the people on those benefits as being, you know, sort of layabout and lazy, even if you're doing it only to a small portion. So and then the, the other thing is there's a debate over spending, um, whether it should be fixed at the 2022 levels or 2023 levels, how long it should be capped and whether it should uh, have some slow amount of growth. If you cap this non-defense discretionary part of the budget, which, by the way, is this tiny little corner of the budget, which we can talk about later. Um, and then the other final thing I'd say is there's a debate about, um, which as of Thursday morning, the reporting suggested that the White House was going to get this while they're not getting a lot of other things, and that is how long to lift the debt ceiling. Do you lift it into next year or do you lift it past the election? I mean, that seems significant to me because one thing that's so apparent is that the debt ceiling is turning into a second round of budget negotiations with the people in charge who have the highest pain threshold and who represent a minority of Americans, right? I mean, if you think, I think, like, if you think of the Republicans in the House, yes, they control the House barely, but they're only one part of the government. They're not the Senate. They're not the executive branch. And by throttling the whole government and really taking President Biden hostage. I mean, that's what they're boasting about. And he's used that word, too. It's another form of of minority rule that involves like just freezing everyone and paralyzing them and forcing them to accede to demands. 
Yes, that is that has been the Republican strategy for a long time is these is finding these choke points from minority rule and using them super effectively. Yeah, they've done a great job with it. I mean, as a matter of politics, they've done a, a tremendous job of it as a matter of intellectual honesty for a party. It's funny because here they are being most successful in um, this spending battle, which, again, it's a tiny portion of the budget. If you were really, really exercised about the budget, you would go for the bigger stuff, defense, the rising cost of health care, which has, of course, been with us for a very long time and how that affects programs like Medicare and Medicaid. And you would go after Social Security, as George Bush tried to do after his um, victory in, in 2004. But nobody's doing that. In fact, the party's moving quite the other direction. So as a matter of, of actual fiscal budgeting, it's not there. But as a matter of politics, the Republicans have done so far um, an amazing job. I mean, can we just pause for one second? There, there's something which goes almost goes unsaid these days because the Republicans have, are who they are. But the Republican congressional policy to never raise taxes ever, that no one will cast a vote to raise taxes, is probably the most irresponsible policy position in U.S. legislative history. It is the fact that that it is it is literally impossible to get Republicans to vote for tax increases when there are strong, like moral, financial, you know, economic efficiency arguments to raise certain kinds of taxes is it's just outrageous. It's outrageous that they won't do it. And we don't talk about it nearly enough. It's just taken as a given. It's part of the furniture. Like, oh, they just don't. That's just we can't talk about it. It's not going to happen. They don't do it. OK, so we'll 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 we'll, you know, we'll cut something else. It's very frustrating, and they should be held to account on that over and over again. Like the way the way rich people in this country do not pay taxes is incredible. Two things to, to add to that: one is if you look at the tax cuts during the Trump years, um, they contributed considerably to the fiscal issues that Republicans are. Some of them are saying they're concerned about, but they're not touching those taxes and all the promises that that the Trump officials made at the time. Remember, those taxes were not only supposed to pay for themselves, which they didn't, but they were also supposed to help um, with the with the debt, which they didn't. And then secondarily, what you touch on, David, is one of the criticisms that President Biden gets from progressives, which is that he has not messaged this well enough, that he has not put Republicans on the defensive. While that may be true, presidents can't do that, especially this one in the current situation he's in. He just doesn't have the idea, which we've talked about in the past, but which has been borne out by political science, is, is presidents don't change really the narrative on this kind of thing. Um, Donald Trump had some ability to um, control and whipsaw the public conversation. But um, when you get to talking about non-defense discretionary, harder to do and really harder for Joe Biden to do both stylistically, temperamentally, and also given what his um, polling numbers are. And it's a bit of a disconnect between the laudatory things that were said about Biden's, um, what people thought was jujitsu. And there was a little of it when he put Republicans on the defensive about Medicare and Social Security during the State of the Union address, kind of artfully in that moment of theater in the State of the Union. But that had a limited um, kind of run because we now see the problem he faces in these debt limit negotiations, which is a president can't really win over the public conversation they just it just doesn't work that way do you think emily that they're going to get there without tiptoeing closer to the cliff like are they actually going to get a deal done before bad things start to happen 
or Republicans gonna Republicans can won't move until the really bad things start to happen just to just to get a better deal out of Biden. I think we're going to tiptoe closer to the cliff, especially because there's some question as you started off with about whether the X date is June 1 or 8th or 15th. I mean, the Republicans are kind of scoffing at Janet Yellen like, oh, you don't really mean it. You're going to find some way to patch things over for a while. And so that suggests to me that this June 1st deadline is not hard and fast in their minds. And because the politics are playing in their favor, I just don't see them ending this before they absolutely have to. Right. John, do you think that Democrats botched the job of getting rid of this issue when they possibly had the chance to do it? I, I, I still find it incredible. They knew this was coming. They knew this issue. They know this issue is what Emily said. It's the second chance to negotiate the budget and to do it on really bad terms, to do it, to do it with, with someone who's playing chicken with an 18 wheeler. And they were aware of that. And they, did have majorities, and maybe maybe the argument is that you couldn't have gotten Mansion or Cinema to vote for it. But I've always felt like if I were if I were president, if I were the leader of the House and Senate, I would have just had a debt ceiling vote that raised the debt ceiling to, as I've said, like a a Googleplex dollars, and then it's over. Yes, it's you know you you have that bad news for that that vote, but then it's at least it's done. If you're doing it just on your own. You could imagine calculating the political risk as like it's a vote that Democrats are going to eat themselves entirely and vulnerable Democrats in any kind of swing district are going to are going to eat, you know, blowing up the budget at a time of high inflation. And they might feel some defensiveness, particularly with the the party uh, doing poorly among voters on the the question of the economy, that you don't want to vote for something that can be potentially tied in, in politics to inflation, which people say they care about. Whereas if you're in the middle of a fight, there are two ways of reading the Republicans. One, they've got this crazy wing that forced 15 votes for the House speakership, and that's going to blow up in this huge public spectacle. And we'll be able to vote for a debt ceiling increase because we'll be able to say we're saving the country from these people cratering the country. The other way it could go, which is the way it did go, is that those those um, people on the very hard right of the Republican Party end up having this higher pain threshold, which which then basically wins the game of chicken. Like, basically, Biden is deciding they're not going to swerve. We're driving at each other. They are not going to swerve. They are committed to not swerving, and I really believe they're not going to swerve, so we have to swerve. But it's not a foregone conclusion that they weren't going to swerve because, and I think this adds somewhere, this is somewhere in the mix, and after 2011, it became a matter of faith that Barack Obama shouldn't have negotiated at all on the debt ceiling. And then he didn't do it again, and he won that next round. And so I think there was some view that if you just hold firm to that, that that's the way to go. And that the um, the problem is the difference between 2013 when Obama didn't negotiate and now is that Biden can't risk a breach because he he can't basically bet that the Republicans are going to be able to do the right thing by his lights. Slate Plus members, you get so much for your membership, which you can get by going to slate.com slash GabFest Plus. And among the things you get is our regular bonus segments. Every week we do a bonus segment. And this week our bonus segment is a conversation about the amazing Atlantic piece uh, by Graham Wood about Clarence Thomas, benefactor, uh, vacation buddy Harlan Crow. Go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a member today. This episode of the GabFest is brought to you by Aura Frames. Are you looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? 
Aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It is super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. Aura frames in the notes that I have here says moms like Aura frames. I'm here to tell you that is like the truest statement in the world. I gave my mother an Aura frame. She absolutely loves it. She's also always hectoring me to keep adding new photos to her Aura frame so that she's got great new photos every week. So think about giving your mother or grandmother or aunt or sister or friend an Aura frame for Mother's Day. It was named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things. Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Two more candidates officially entered the presidential race on the Republican side. This week, Tim Scott, the South Carolina senator, uh, declared his candidacy with a typically sunny, optimistic, faith-laced announcement. And that's why I'm announcing today that I'm running for president of the United States of America! Then, much more entertainingly, or possibly less entertainingly, was Ron DeSantis, the Florida governor, who went on Twitter, Twitter Spaces, a platform that no one has ever heard of, to announce his candidacy to Elon Musk. And it was the announcement on Wednesday night was just marred by glitches. He lost 75% of his audience before he even spoke. Here's a little bit of that delightful fiasco. All right, I think we're broadcasting. <laughs> Man, I think we melted the internet there. Yeah, that was insane. Sorry. We uh, uh, I'm actually doing this from uh, David Sachs' Twitter account uh, because uh, it looks like doing it from mine basically <laughs> broke the Twitter system. Um, anyway, thanks everyone for joining Yeah, us. I mean, so uh, Governor DeSantis, uh, can, are you there? Can you hear us? I think you broke I'm right, here. I know. I think, I think you broke the internet there. We well, had a- what would you like to tell them? Well, I am running for president of the United States to lead our great American comeback. So let us start with DeSantis, Emily, who was in much weaker shape than he was three months ago, but much stronger than anyone else in the field besides Trump, the Republican field besides Trump. Why has he slumped so much in recent months, despite this kind of cannonade of conservative legislation he has rammed through the Florida legislature and the, and the relative prosperity and, and vitality of Florida? The expectations were so high. He was supposed to emerge as the youthful or at least middle-aged challenger to the kind of old, bruised, beaten-up former President Trump warrior. And voters just don't seem to have really gone for it in the sense of big poll numbers. And then you have a narrative that he's um, disappointing people. So, yeah, the Florida legislative campaign continues, but he just doesn't seem like he's taking off. The fight with Disney, which we talked about last week, I think seems, at least to me, like a kind of weird self-own. And he's not a compelling presence, really. I think his, like, lack of um, bonhomie, maybe, his, like, lack of charisma. I mean, listen to his speeches. You just don't feel like you're in the presence of some 
hugely successful, brilliant politician. I also think you can't be the main rival to Trump without taking on Trump directly. And he's been unwilling to do that. And it just seems like if you're supposed to be the alternative, you have to make that really clear. And so while he is uh, refraining from directly challenging Trump, Trump has been belittling him every step of the way. And that seems to be quite effective. Yeah, John, can you sort of dive more into that? So what does he do need to do to eat into Trump? Can he get anywhere without making it a kind of mano a mano versus Trump, where he is just attacking Trump. Can can he do it without that? Or does he need to do that? Anything is possible, right? But the problem is you have to act, <laughs> by which I mean this. Um, it's plausible that Trump falls of his own weight, that Trump gets indicted, that he just, that the baggage just t- totals up too much, and that DeSantis, though he had this launchpad failure on Twitter, that DeSantis just does what you're supposed to do, which is go to those early states, create an organization in the later states, raise a whole bunch of money, get your sea legs under you, which is a long process that it takes every candidate a long time to do, which is the danger of him starting late, um, and then just wait for Trump to wear himself out. Now, that's one approach. The other is he won't wear himself out. You have to do it. In so doing it, you show that you are, in fact, like Donald Trump in the sense that you are tough. People want a fighter. They want you to not do like talk about the stuff you've done. They want to see you do it. They want you to replace your, you know, claims about Florida, which I think he can make some, certainly on COVID. Um, But what's more powerful, saying, explaining what you did about COVID or showing them that you are tough in real time in front of uh, an audience at, say, a debate or something like that? You know, he probably raised a lot of money, which is great. He's finally in the race, which he needs to be. Um, But I think we've established it as probably a truth on this show that when you have a symbolic moment, you want that symbolic moment not to ratify the rap that is against you. And if the rap that is against him is that he's had a kind of lackluster um, arrival onto the stage in this run-up period, and that basically there's less than advertised, you definitely don't want a symbolic moment that affirms that so strongly as this one. It may not matter at all in the end, but three weeks down the road, if things aren't going well for him, this launch will become the shorthand everybody uses for a candidate who just can't get it done. It's like, you know, not that many people were there when Jeb Bush said, please clap. But boy, did that become a symbol for his kind of lackluster campaign. Not that many people could fit into the Nashua gymnasium when Reagan said, I paid for this microphone. But it became a moment. I wanted to know how many more of those you could do, John. Like, could you do, could you have unrolled 27 more of those? Well, I mean, we can go all the way back. We (laughs) can go all the way back to, to, um. That's okay. To, uh, James, we can go back to James Blaine. Don't encourage him. Okay, 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 okay. So, Emily, do you feel like the, the, the Twitter fuck up is on DeSantis, that he owns it for having chosen this this weird platform and this weird uh, interlocutor to make his announcement? Or do you feel like this is Musk? This is on Musk. I mean, it's probably on Musk, but it's going to rebound onto DeSantis because he's the one who is running for office. Uh, you know, I think the other thing 
that we're watching with Twitter with this announcement, with Tucker Carlson um, hanging up a shingle there with um, the conservative commentator Ben Shapiro and some other guy making it their exclusive venue. Like, Musk is really turning it in this rightward direction. Um, Charlie Warzel was writing about this for The Atlantic this week. It feels kind of unmistakable. So that's just a secondary point. The DeSantis part is just the hilarity of all the dead airspace and the hot mic whispering. I mean, there are a couple of things there. One is what he wants Carlson to do, Shapiro, this Twitter spaces, uh, this thing with DeSantis is is he's taking a platform. The platform exists in one form. It's like what it's really good at one thing, which is these short kind of quick written exchanges. And he's trying to turn it into television or some variant of television you know television exists it's good the technology works they are able to have millions and millions of people watching it without any problems at all times Uh, and also by the way there's youtube which is much much better as a video platform than twitter can ever be and so it's it is really odd to me that musk is betting a future on on sort of variegating this platform which which has one strength which is not that Although it could just be a vanity project too. I mean, just to that 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 feeds his view of a rebalancing of the way the world works, and it's not going to make money. It's just a place to get this out and speak to the club, and and you know have that as a a, a thing to do. Can I just make a couple more quick points about um, DeSantis? The lack of a message, you know, the anti woke thing clearly is something that Republicans and particularly primary voters like. But it's not their big top issue. When you poll them and say, what do you care about? Wokeness comes in on the Fox poll. It came in at 1%. Like they care about the economy. They care about. So what's interesting is DeSantis is essentially saying the same thing now that he was saying before he ran when his poll numbers were going down. So that's not great. And back to your question, David, about, I mean, that's not great if you're trying to show people you've got this other dimension, which is necessary when you've dropped from being only 15 points down to Donald Trump to now being 30 points down. The second thing is that I that to your question, David, about taking on Donald Trump to do so on your own is to basically convince a portion of the party that all the things they forgave Trump for are now fatal flaws and that he's unfit to be president. But he's conditioned people for the since 2015 to see those fatal flaws, not just as excusable, but as signature qualities and what they want in a president. And so you've really got a lot to undo a lot of wiring. Now, having once caused the Republican, I mean, the Republican electorate has changed its views on lots of things very quickly in order to support Donald Trump. So maybe they can, maybe the adhesive power of those new positions is weak. Um, but that's not nothing, having to, to convince voters to change their minds of things that they've been repeatedly asked to re-up because Donald Trump has tested those, those norms, you know, consistently. So I feel like DeSantis, there are three kind of places he could play. One is he's going hard against Trump and he's explicitly going against Trump and he's doing it in this kind of energetic, vital way. And he's saying, I'm the alternative, and he's he's attacking Trump. And that's that's one. A second is he isn't, is what he's doing, which is being this kind of, I'm anti-woke, I stop the COVID madness, and, and doesn't say anything about Trump. And I'm in a kind of more energetic version than somebody else, that somebody else being Trump, but he won't say Trump's name. The third version is, is running kind of on the fact that Florida is in really good shape and that he's been a very energetic executive and then economically Florida is doing great. And I'm a, I'm a great executive and leader. And he, 
that seems to me like the obvious. I mean, if he's in the general election candidate, that will definitely be what he's doing. But why isn't he running on that piece of it now? Why is he running on this? But it's so much more about the antique woke stuff than it is about the the business stuff. He is trying to do it. And it seems to me the most obvious and best lane because it allows people to rush into a place that is um, positive, doesn't have to be anti-Trump. Like, yeah, Trump was great. Let's give him a gold watch. Now we've got this, you know, guy who's seized Florida and is doing all these amazing things and he's pissing off the liberals too. And isn't that great? That's why it's striking that in his launchpad moment, where you want to take advantage of these things that, as you say, David, that he hasn't. But it's when you listen to him talk, it's a very um, and maybe this is super effective in that um, closed loop environment that he's, as Axios called it, his safe spaces game plan. You know, maybe it works, but he uses a lot of the like buzzwords. I have to look up a lot of the things and I've covered this stuff pretty pay attention to it pretty closely. The shorthand he uses to to refer to a lot of these um, issues that he raises. And I don't know whether if you're outside of the extremely online, you can catch up to him. Whereas the argument you're making, David, is one that seems much more just sort of easily grabbable. Let's end this topic by talking a bit about Tim Scott and in contrast to DeSantis, which because DeSantis is a is an extremely so far to my face, my ears, an extremely unappealing retail candidate. He is not, there's something that seems sort of mean and small about him, not just physically small, although that is a thing too. But Tim Scott is the only candidate, or in contrast to Trump and and DeSantis, doesn't appear to be like waiting at dusk for the zombies to attack him. I mean, he's like, he seems like he might actually enjoy himself in life. I'm living proof that God and a good family and the United States of America can do all things if we believe. Will you believe it with me? But he does have a problem, which is that he also appears to be totally uninteresting. He has no real great strength apart from the fact that he appears to be pretty cheerful about it all. That seems fair. I mean, I do think being the major black candidate in this field is significant and kind of brings you a particular kind of attention. And um, the idea that you can say things that other people can't and that you can reassure Republicans with your vision that America is not a racist country, that all seems pretty appealing to me. I think I asked this way too much, but I wonder if he was running for vice president. And it seemed to me like he could be a really good counterpart to some angry bear person like Donald Trump. But I mean, raised by a single mother, totally challenging early life, um, you know, becomes a successful uh, as an insurance agent. Like that's a pretty good story in America um, to be able to talk about the American dream and and say, you know, that's me. That's pretty good. Um, Barack Obama had done some things, but did not have uh, you know, the Joe Biden resume. So people have run for president successfully without um, vast resumes. Um, the problem is the optimistic, happy, what used to be called the sort of Jack Kemp wing of the Republican Party kind of doesn't exist the, anymore. I mean, it's very small. Um, and so you have to rebuild it before you can appeal to it, I think. Now, having said that, I remember somebody once telling me when Newt Gingrich was running for president and had no chance, but had support, a a strategist in some state saying, you know, 
it's not that people want to vote for Gingrich. They just want him in the race. And what this person meant is Gingrich was an ideas guy. He he was still considered the author of the Republican return to power, um, which was a rightful title um, because of the, taking over the House in 1994. And that this person was arguing that, that, that voters want somebody like that just around because it says something good about like the party and its ideas and its future orientation, all those kinds of things. And I think that Tim Scott feels like a candidate, whether people think he can actually go all the way or not, they they really would like, Republicans would like him to be in the race and for the party to represent all of the things that his life story and the things he says about it that are that they're all true. That was great. I, I withdraw my sideways criticism of Scott. Maybe he'll get further than, maybe he'll get further. Maybe he'll get somewhere. As I said, I'm not, sh- I don't know if the constituency is there, but um, I mean, there was, there would have been a time where he would have been, where you would have said, yes, the constituency is there. Sam Altman, the CEO of OpenAI, which created the generative AI GPT programs, was given a very warm welcome on Capitol Hill. Unlike other tech CEOs who've come to Washington, who've gotten savaged recently, Altman was was bipartisanly petted and praised and deferred to. And he came to Congress for an unusual reason. He came to tell the House and Senate that his industry should be regulated. So even though I've now read about 10 articles on the subject, I still don't actually understand. I don't even have the foggiest idea how Altman or anyone else actually proposes that this AI industry be regulated. So I hope uh, you guys will help me understand that later in this topic. But Emily, let's start with why is it that Altman and others believe that generative AI, these large language model AIs, should be regulated? What danger, what problems do they pose for the world or might pose for the world that means they should be regulated? Well, there are kind of different levels and timelines of danger. So one danger, which is present, is misinformation. You know, the kinds of deep fakes of voice cloning or fake videos that fool people into thinking something's true that it's not and can hugely affect, um, you know, political developments or people's reputations if they are sustained um, phony misinformation campaigns. Another is shift in how people are employed. Um, When you look at the kind of writing and art that AI can do, how many knowledge workers is is it going to displace? Is it going to be a tool, you know, like the internet or the calculator that makes people more productive? Or is it just going to push people out of work? And then there are these more longer term, at least currently, um, and potentially existential risks could a bad actor get hold of AI and have it take down a power grid or mess around with the stock market um, for some investment purposes. And then the very greatest um, risk of all is that AI is going to become smarter than humans and then take control of the planet from us and exterminate us. I interviewed Mo Gaudat, who um, uh, was for 30 years at Google and at his last post was... um, uh, in the their Project X, which is their most kind of forward-thinking, experimental, innovative uh, part of the company. And he's uh, written a book about the dangers of AI. And his essential argument is that because AI is basically teaching itself how to learn, that it will ultimately come to the conclusion that humans are basically awful and abhorrent. And that that is how it will self 
educate itself about the danger of humans, that by just looking at our our nature, it will come to that conclusion. And I said, but there's lots of, you know, joyous, buoyant things about um, human behavior that it can also draw from as it creates its understanding of humanity. And he gave this wonderful answer about the divine in the writing of a symphony and in other acts of creation. And he was and he basically said, yes, there is there is divinity in in the in human interaction with other humans. It's just the problem is that there's so much more of the other from which to draw a sample and to draw a conclusion. Um, now, maybe AI will be smart enough to know about the balance of things. Do you really believe that? Do you guys really believe that if you look at the balance of the human civilization, the human relationship to each other, to the earth, that objectively we're bad and we're destructive? Or not. I do not. I absolutely do not believe that. I believe like, you know, we've there are problems we have with, you know, overtaxing resources and there's an enormous amount of cruelty that comes out. But my God, like the the beauty of human relationships and the the kind of the social world that we create and the and the prosperity and the the desire for others to have well-being is so deeply in us. I think the question is whether who is who's driving the bus. So I think the argument is that, well, everything you say is true. I think this is what he was essentially saying. Well, everything you say is true. And there is sweetness and beauty um, of, a, of much more powerful in human relationships and in the smallness of our connections. But that the people driving the bus um, that that are burning through resources that ha- that um, perpetuate a system of massive inequality where your yacht needs a yacht to service it. Um, that they are the ones who have their hands on the wheel and that the conclusion can be drawn that while on balance, you may have more sweet, wonderful people than those who care only about their self-interest and perpetuating the benefits of their small group, that that, the folks who are like that are the ones in charge of the wheel. So as an AI, I've got to do things to get them away from the wheel. That could be, I think that's a possible conclusion. I mean, another cut on this is that it doesn't usually go well for the dumber species when another creature comes along that's smarter, right? Like we've all seen that science fiction movie. And if AI ends up being smarter than humanity, like why won't humanity be enslaved or in even bigger trouble? That implies that AI is a species, that it has the qualities of living, which to me, I mean, I I know I'm obsessed with this. I don't think there is a, like, I don't believe in a mind-body distinction. I don't think there is a mind that exists that isn't connected to something which is, has real sensation in the world. Like you only, you only know things, you only exist insofar as you, you have senses interacting with the physical world around you. There isn't, there isn't anything which is a, which is a mind and the, and AI until AI like steps over that and becomes physically interactive with the world, not just a, knowledge i don't think it it to me it poses no threat to us but i'm an ignorant fool and i'm sure i'm going to be wrong and i'll be the first person who's destroyed by the power grid (laughs) well it can create incentives that that cause people with physical bodies to do things on its behalf i suppose david to answer your question i think one way they're thinking about trying to handle the challenge with ai is the challenge with any fast-moving technology which franklin roosevelt figured out back when he was president is you you can't legislate fast enough with the with the advances of modernity. So you have to create a federal agency. So they're talking about essentially an FCC for AI that would be filled with 
sufficient level experts to be able to know what's going on and and regulate and or at least raise the red flag when things, you know, get get dicey. And to take it one step further, you don't have to have a separate agency. You could also have a department in an existing agency, and then you have to figure out what those regulators are going to do. And one of the things that Altman was suggesting was a licensing scheme, where if you're going to create or have a um, large language model that poses some of these risks, you'd have to check off certain um, you know, safeguards first. Like the thing can't self-regulate. It can't do X, Y, and Z, and that there would be guardrails from the government in place just as there are for, you know, a public utility or developing weapons, like things that we are all sure can pose huge risks when they go badly. That's interesting. Does it, are, are there effective models of technological regulation that they point to that they say, oh, this is, this is analogous? I mean, I was, I was kind of thinking the CFPB uh, the Consumer Finance Protection Board, which has been gutted. Yeah, I was going to uh, say it's that's... been gutted. It's been gutted, but it did. It was a thing that took and took something that was highly opaque, highly complicated, consu- totally impenetrable. Consumers was dangerous to consumers, and consumers mm-hmm. lacked the intelligence and the tools and the sophistication to deal with these powerful forces around them. And it put some constraints around that behavior, and it was oriented to protecting us from those predations. I mean, there are lots of examples, right? There's NHTSA, whatever that stands for, that governs auto safety in the national highways. There are regular old consumer products safety regulators who do their work and protect, right? Like, And then there's nuclear weapons um, treaties and safeguards and, and international inspectors. I mean, what Altman and some people who agree with him really want is international regulation of that sort. So Altman has taken a totally different tack than we've seen from previous tech giant executives, right? They kind of swooned around Silicon Valley, didn't show up in Washington unless they were called to the carpet, acted defiant, told Congress that they were dumb. Often Congress deserved it for asking dumb questions. Altman is totally courting lawmakers, right? He shows up before he testifies. He has dinner with 60 of them. He's willing to give them private demos. He's asking to be regulated. Is that because he is a kind of good Samaritan who sees this danger and like truly wants it to be um, wants to have power taken from him and even money taken from him and his company? Or is he trying to concentrate power in the hands of a few industry leaders like him? I mean, take the licensing scheme. You only get a license if you have lots of investors and lawyers and the other things that would line up to get you the license. And so, and maybe that's good. Like maybe we we want um, AI, given all its risks, concentrated in the hands of a few companies that do operate more like public utilities. But there's a whole other argument in Washington. And Lena Khan, who's the um, head of the FTC, is the leading proponent of this, that no, you want anti-monopolistic um kinds of intervention by the government in this industry. You want to open it up. You want to make sure that there can be more options and more creativity and that the companies will be, you know, not, well, they may be self-regulating, but also challenging each other in these next developments. And that's a kind of fundamental tension here and what kind of regulation, if there is going to be any, that we should have. I'm reminded of another young hotshot Sam who came to Washington asking for regulation, which is 
Sam Bankman Fried also came to Washington and asked for crypto to be regulated and asked to kind of to be the the conduit of that regulation. He sought to be the the architect and conduit. That did not go well. But it, it you know there are, there are interesting analogies there. That's another one where again consumers don't really know what they're dealing with. And there, that same argument was made by other players in crypto, which is, no, we need this to be loose and for there to be creativity and energy and the federal government shouldn't regulate and lock in, create path dependency around a few lucky folks who happen to get in there early. And I, I have no, I'm not sophisticated enough to know what the right answer is, but I don't know that anyone knows whether whether the right answer is, oh, they should be licensed and there should be three of them or, oh, they should be allowed to, you know, wildly innovate and and be creative because we're going to get we're going to get so much more value out of that and and we won't we won't just have a, a few people who got rich off of it. I agree that the right answer is really hard to suss out. And then the problem is is this this enormous ball of risk like hurtling toward us that we're about to be flattened by and we can't even figure out what to do or is it much less urgent and like you know, people in charge of this are kind of playing up the dramatic sci-fi potential here. And actually, we have time to figure it out. And it's better not to do the wrong thing quickly um, and to kind of let it develop one more step. I think that question of timeline and how much urgency there is factors in a lot with along with uncertainty when you're trying to plot out what the what the government should be doing here. And then, of course, there's China, right? There's also this um, specter of if Americans regulate in the wrong way, then we lose the lead that we currently have in this field and we should be worried about the Chinese developing AI or, you know, the next steps of generative intelligence, artificial intelligence, because, like, then they would use it for much more kind of surveillance um, big brother purposes. And so we can't afford to kind of lose our edge. Then there are the Europeans who, as usual, are seem to be further along the kind of regulatory path than we are. So maybe they'll come up with some kind of model. All these questions. Let's go to cocktail chatter. If you were having a drink, which, as far as I know, Bard and ChatGPT cannot have a drink yet. If you're having a drink and talking with a friend, a real life friend or a loved one which, again, I don't think Bard and ChatGPT have friends and loved ones. What would you be chattering about, John? Well, I suppose this is in the same vein of that, but the um, amazing announcement this week that Swiss neuroscientists successfully used a brain-spine interface to enable a paralyzed man to walk um, just using his thoughts. So there was a 40-year-old Dutch man who, so he was paralyzed 12 years ago, and he received two brain implants that basically created a digital bridge, jumped over the injured nerves, and then a portable computer decodes his brain signals and relays them to um, a pulse generator, which then results in the perception that his body uh, is moving voluntarily. And so he's basically can walk and climb stairs with, um, with the aid of a walker, and sometimes uh, he can walk without this digital bridge activated. So it obviously um, is the beginning stages, but a pretty extraordinary beginning stage of... Wait, without the digital bridge activated, which is that like somehow his body has jumped past 
the broken nerve. See, this is why this is why uh, people flock around David Plotz. You've exactly put your finger on the most important thing, yes, which is that by creating this digital bridge, they not only allowed him to walk, but then the body itself was like, oh, okay. And then it started to build its own, essentially, new wiring um, when when aided by this, which is the other big part of an important part of this thing, which I, this development, which I, which I was about to leave out had you not asked about it. So you're exactly right. Um, anyway, so there you go. AI, once they get in charge, of, in touch with that, um, watch out. Emily Bazelon, what's your chatter? I am super taken with a story in the Washington Post by Charlotte Litton about this vast network of Mayan cities that has been discovered in northern Guatemala. How wild is this? I mean, it sort of makes sense, right? The finding here with this amazing sounding technology is that if you look underneath the trees and all their roots, you can see this vast network of highways and roads and smaller communities that was connecting these um, Mayan pyramids. And the part of it that makes sense to me is that when you see these amazing giant structures when you're looking at Mayan ruins, the idea that it just like is in one place, like you just have Machu Picchu or you just have um, the La Danta pyramid in Guatemala, it never really made sense that that could just arise without having all the support of like towns and roads and networks that we think of. So it turned out they were all there. They were just buried. Um, and this technology, which is called LIDAR, has an aerial transmitter that bounces millions of infrared laser pulses off the ground and makes 3D images of structures hidden by the jungle. I was borrowing Charlotte's line there. So I just found this um, enrapturing, this idea that, you know, the Mayans had this vast network that we didn't know about, um, a much more sophisticated, developed civilization than we realized, and that this part of um, northern Guatemala called El Mirador isn't just the cradle of the Mayan civilization, but there has all this proof of this complex society that was in place around 1000 BC, a whole volume of human history that we've never known before. My chatter is so mundane compared to your guys' chatter. My chatter, I was thinking like, what am I actually thinking about this week? What am I talking about? And it's this kind of tomato that I've been eating. It's called a twilight tomato. Have you guys had this? It's a cherry tomato. It's an oval cherry tomato that I guess is made or grown by one company, which I've now forgotten the name of. Uh, and it's a dark red, almost black cherry tomato. Uh, and it, it has a very thick skin, which sounds gross. It sounds That sounds unappealing, but actually it makes it incredibly satisfying to bite into because the explosion when you get through the skin is just incredible. They're so delicious. The flavor is so intense. I would strongly recommend if you if you can shop at a at a but probably not at Safeway but at any any kind of gourmet slightly gourmet grocery store uh, get a Twilight Tomato try it they come in little containers and they're incredible. incredible. Nature Sweet is the uh, is that the brand you buy? I think there? it is Nature Sweet. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. Listeners, please keep sending your chatter to us. Tweet them to us at at slategabfest. But more usefully email them to us at gabfest at slate.com something that you're interested in some some article some work of culture something you've you've eaten uh we love getting your listener chatters and hilariously we have another listener chatter this week about monks we had one last week about monks we have another one this week about monks from bob rosner this is bob rosner from san francisco my cocktail chatter this week is about a cocktail 
One of my favorites is a last word, a pre-prohibition cocktail comprised of equal parts gin, lime, maraschino, and green chartreuse, a lovely herbaceous liqueur made by Carthusian monks. It is an exquisite cocktail whose construct has more than 40 derivatives, including a paper plane, a bourbon cocktail that is another favorite. I went shopping for green chartreuse last week, only to discover there is none to be had. Upon investigation, it turns out to be a supply issue. The monks have cut back on production as they've decided to focus more on their spirituality. Sounds like, John, from the look on your face that you think there's no tragedy in the green chartreuse not being made anymore. I had a bad moment with green chartreuse at an age, at a much younger age in which the availability to the full complement of spirits was not um, within my reach. And so w- we reached for whatever was and green chartreuse is not something that should be consumed maybe at all, but in any quantity more than a little bit. That is our show for today. The Gabfest is produced by Shana Roth. Our researcher is Julie Hugan. Our theme music is by They Might Be Giants. Ben Richmond, Senior Director for Podcast Operations. Alicia Montgomery, VP of Audio of Slate. Please follow us on Twitter at, at @slategabfest. I guess. Sure. Fine. Tweet chatter to us there or email it to us at gabfestslate.com. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. Thanks for listening. We will talk to you next week. Hello, Slate Plus. Let's go visit the Garden of Evil together. Graham Wood, a, an Atlantic writer, an Atlantic contributor, has a very sympathetic profile of Harlan Crow, the weirdo billionaire benefactor to Clarence Thomas. Uh, he went and visited Crow in Dallas and, and saw Crow's incredible collection of statues, his Garden of Evil, the statues that, that Crow has, which also has non-evil people in it. Um, and talk to him about who he is and why he has had this relationship with Thomas and where their friendship came from. And um, Emily, start us off. What did you make of this remarkable profile? So many weirdnesses here, right? I mean, okay, so let's start with the part about Thomas. I mean, Crow seems to be, or professes himself to be just shocked, shocked that anyone could imagine there was anything wrong with this friendship, um, that anything could besmirch Clarence Thomas's reputation. It's all just completely innocent. And Crow has lots of friends and treats them to lots of goodies. And there's nothing to see here. So that just seemed obtuse to me. Um, I don't know what other line he is supposed to take on it publicly, but um, I just couldn't really buy it at all. What did you guys think? Wait, you don't, because if you're obtuse, you're obtuse, which means you don't know that you're supposed to be saying something else, that you hold these views that are perhaps you can't read the room and perhaps your vast wealth has um, cocooned you from the way people might interpret you, particularly in today's contemporary environment from w- with which you as a real estate person don't have a lot of interaction. But you're you're legitimately clueless as opposed to a person who creates a false, you know exactly what's going on and this is the pose you take because it seems to be the one that's going to extricate you from your predicament. I mean, I'm not sure. I kind of thought it was genuine that it was the yeah. cocooned guy. 
Um, but it just seemed to me that at this point, having taken in all the criticism and seem, seeing the impact it had, that you might also have some self-awareness that there's another view of this, which is that this is totally wildly inappropriate as behavior for Clarence Thomas to be engaged That was just a snippet from our Slate Plus conversation. If you want to hear the whole conversation, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a member today. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.